You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Chuck Polinuk. Polinuk joined Morning Edition host Rick Ganley on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to discuss his latest novel, Not Forever, But For Now. The book traces one notorious family of killers responsible for some of history's greatest crimes and tells the story of the two brothers set to take over the family business. This conversation was recorded live on September 12, 2023. Please note... The reading at the top of the show includes some explicit language. Okay, okay, okay. So... Right now, while we are here, Mallory's husband is at home with the kids, and it's Mallory's husband's birthday. Do you think that he deserves a case of spotted dick? (laughs) Mallory, here's a case of spotted dick to give your husband. Please. And what else do we got? Let's see. It doesn't really work on radio, does it? But what Chuck has just done is Chuck has just spilled out something like 60 tiny baby kangaroos with little babies attached with a string. And he's going to start throwing them right now. And he's also got bags of candy bars. Who wants a payday? That's going to hurt. <laughs> Kangaroos. <laughs> dog toys. Who's got a really good dog? <laughs> Boom. Beer bottle. Boom. Donut. Pizza. <laughs> Kangaroo. So throughout the rest of the night, things are going to come flying at you. Especially if I see you have your phone out. (laughs) Boom. Kangaroo. Kangaroo. I didn't even unwrap this. It came from China. (laughs) Boom. So those are just going to sit there. And throughout the rest of the night, Rick and I are just going to randomly lob them at you. (laughs) And why does, why does Chuck Polinick do that? Why does Chuck Polinick throw stuff at people? 
About a million years ago, I was in Seattle in an auditorium about this size, alone with Max Brooks. And at the time, Max Brooks uh, was the king because he had written World War Z, the ultimate zombie novel. And Max Brooks, uh, he's the son of Mel Brooks, and his mother was or is Anne Bancroft from The Graduate. And uh, he said, he told me, that growing up, they could never, ever eat in restaurants. Kangaroo? <laughs> Kangaroo. Because at any time they went to eat in a restaurant, Max said, he said, every old Jewish dentist in LA had to line up at their table and tell Mel Brooks his best joke. <laughs> Mel Brooks was so much their hero that they all had to get a laugh from their hero. And regardless of how funny the joke was or wasn't, Mel Brooks always, always, always laughed. And Anne Bancroft always sat there looking beautiful and gracious. And three hours of that is nobody's idea of a good time. <laughs> and right there sitting in Seattle, you know, I kind of saw my opening. So I said, is World War Z really about your mother's death? Because I figured that in the, uh, the year in which she'd been writing that book was the year in which Anne Bancroft had been struggling with cancer. And Max gets a little misty-eyed. I mean, it's a moment. It's Chuck and Max alone in this room. And he says, yeah, nobody has ever caught that. Nobody's ever caught that. Said Chuck, throwing a payday <laughs> and throwing a big bag of Three Musketeers. That is what you want to do. If you just can connect your work with one person, there's something so gorgeous about seeing that thing arc through the air. And you don't know if anybody's going to get it, and you don't know if it's going to hit the floor, and if just one person gets it, it arrests that arc. It is so beautiful to see. And so, again, that is, that is why I do what I do. And that is what World War Z is about, because for one year, Max Brooks took Anne Bancroft to one oncologist after another, and they all said, we've got this, she's not gonna die. And after one year, the zombies win, and Anne Bancroft died. <laughs> Dog toy. And I'd like to read you a story. After that, we're going to play a game. After that, we're going to have Q&A. Uh, if you win a, one of the things in the game, the prizes will be waiting for you up front. You need to keep the thing. I'll explain it later. <laughs> Otherwise, all of the prizes are books inscribed by me. Uh, they are the coloring book bait 
that I brought, brought out a couple years ago. And there are copies also of the Fight Club 2 graphic novel. So right now, I'm going to read you a short story called Commencement. More kangaroos. <laughs> Commencement. Welcome to you. Welcome to you, the, gradu the graduating class of 2023. Go Wildcats, go green and gold. By now, most of you, you've got your sweaty little mitts on your high school yearbook, and you've made the rounds. The popular among you, you got the most signatures, a buttload of variations on to the sweetest person ever and have a great summer and don't ever change. That scribbled in pen across senior portraits and team photos. And the washouts, you managed to get some pity quotes scribbled in your book by some feel-sorry teachers. But what none of you grasp is that you are leaving money on the table. Big money. Look around, why don't you? Anymore. Anymore, every graduating class has one oddball at least one. And not to point fingers, but that quiet kid who nobody asked to sign their annual, his signature will be worth a king's ransom in a couple years. A 1978 Rebier annual, for example. If you get your mitts on one of those with a have a great summer, scribbled by Jeff Dahmer, Your ship has come in. <laughs> or a 1953 Terra Hut renegade with a don't ever change scribbled by one Charles Miles Manson. To buy that book would set you back at least 10 grand. In closing, I just want to nudge you a little. Go seek out the kid who peed brown poop out of his butt <laughs> from bad hot lunch in second grade. That kid is a powder keg. <laughs> Say that you're sorry, sorry that you laughed, and ask for his autograph, just in case. And in closing, May I call your attention to one Stacy Keller, a student who graduated here, go Wildcats, so far back that she took as her role model Farrah Fawcett Majors, the Charlie's Angel hitched to the Bionic Man, the only angel that most people can remember, even if she walked off that show after just the first season. And she made a poster to prove that you do not need big boobs. You only need a bright smile and, and one big nipple. <laughs> and, and hair, the blonde hair, the strands of which spell out the word sex in subliminal messaging down your back. And the world will beat a path to your door. Anyway, Stacy Keller. 
she knelt at the altar of everything Farrah Fawcett on account of before Farrah, if a girl got a hickey sucked on her neck, a big purple hickey, or, or even wore a bandage on her neck or, or wore a turtleneck sweater, that girl might as well find herself a pimp. No boy in good standing would look at her twice. That's where Farah, wearing her flipped back bangs, comes in. Farah put an electric curling iron into the hands of every girl in America. Going forward, a girl could show up at class with, with hickeys, even hickeys with teeth marks or, or, or herpes sores or a big honking HPV on her neck and say that it was a curling iron burn. So in that one small way, Farrah Fawcett saved the human race. In closing, Farrah was on that show for one season. And still, if you're asked What's a Charlie's Angel? You will not say Kate Jackson. You sure as hell won't say Cheryl Teagues. It's only Mother Nature that after Lee Majors, she married Ryan O'Neill, who's the only other most beautiful blonde person ever. As for acting, she made people swallow the idea that of her in love with Kirk Douglas. No, not a young, hot Kirk Douglas, but or Michael Douglas, but an old dinosaur, Kirk Douglas. In the film Saturn III, a, a leathery old Spartacus. When most people, most people in that movie, they found the killer robot who stuck the needle in Farrah's eye to be more doable. <laughs> Back in the day, America only included two kinds of people. People in the Farrah Fawcett camp versus people in the Susan Anton camp, with the exception of maybe one joker who'd side with Bo Derek. But then Susan Anton turned into a Nazi-engineered genetic time bomb who went crazy in the film Golden Girl, while Farrah got abused by an abusive husband and set him on fire in his bed. So that's why, why now, even you college prep honor students of the class of 2023 you're asking yourself, who the hell is Susan Anton? In closing, rest assured that someday you too will worship the people who were hot when you were hot, even if it's Magda Gabor or Bess Meyerson. Someday you will go to YouTube and have to sit through a commercial about age-related macular degeneration <laughs> and a commercial about arthritis, just so you can watch your favorite Communards video. But not Farah. All her entire life, Stacy Keller knelt at the altar of everything Farah, because Farah Fawcett always stayed the same level of hot as the music videos that MTV could only play after 11 o'clock. It might interest you to know that back in the day, this town suffered a rash of dog disappearances, all of them house pets, 
sweet breeds such as Jack Russell Terriers and Chihuahuas. Somebody snatched dogs out of backyards and out of cars and threw these toy poodles into the meat grinder of a dogfighting ring in the unincorporated parts of the county. They tossed the Yorkies and the Corgis, nice friendly dogs, into a pit for the other dogs to tear apart. The dogs that didn't shred the little dogs, the trainer fed, fed those dogs to the bigger dogs until it was just the biggest, baddest dogs that they had left to fight each other. By the time Stacy Keller could grasp what had taken place, her King Charles Spaniel was already torn to shreds. So when Stacy Keller's dog disappeared, she asked herself, what would Farah do? Stacy Keller, who sat where you are sitting right now, and who cheered at wildcat pep rallies, she brought home a Pomeranian, and she set it loose in her backyard. And when some guy lured it to the fence and made a grab for that dog, Stacy Keller, she jumped out of the lilac bush and she hosed his face with a big can of bear spray, just like Farrah Fawcett would. <laughs> she dragged this big dummy, blinded by the bear spray, into her house, and she got him into her big stone fireplace, and she lashed the headboard of an old brass bed across the front to make it like a jail cell right there in her, in her living room, because that's what Farrah had done in her movie. Stacy Keller, who nobody noticed in high school and who probably wasn't asked to, to autograph anybody's annual, she got the big blind dummy's phone and she demanded how to unlock it. The guy was shouting, false imprisonment and kidnapping. Stacy Keller couldn't give a shit. <laughs> she asked for the names of his dogfighting crew so she could text them all and rattling, rattling the brass bed bars of his fireplace jail, the dummy called her a stupid bitch, and he yelled that him and his associates, they were gonna come back there, and they were gonna pull a train on her stupid bitch ass. And in closing, <laughs> you need to grasp that Stacy Keller had, had something that even Farrah didn't have. Stacy Keller had a little switch on the wall, and she flipped it. The fireplace made a little click, click, click sound, and out came the smell of natural gas. The bear-sprayed dummy, he shook his brass prison bars and scrambled to climb the narrow chimney. His hands clawed down soot off the bricks, but when the fire caught, the flames jumped to his bug-sprayed clothes and his hair. You never heard such screams. Just from the fear, the dummy pissed out the fire. He slapped out the flames on his face. He broke his teeth, chewing on those brass bars. Stacy Keller, she asked again, nice, how to unlock his phone. She asked the names of his associates. She stood with one hand on the fireplace switch because that's what Farah would do. Blisters were coming up all over the burned up dummy, coated in 
soot, and pee. Stacy flipped the switch just to put the fear of hell into him, that click, click, click. The guy blurted out his passcode and she unlocked his phone. He begged her, please. She wrote down the names he told her and looked up their numbers on the phone. And in closing, you'll be happy to hear that Stacy flipped that switch one last time. The burning alive big dummy, he must have shook the whole house trying to get out. He clawed up the chimney and fell down into the flames. He pissed and spit and shit and bled so much his blood put out the fire. But Stacy had, Stacy had electronic ignition. Another click, 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 and he was back in hell, thrashing and scorched with a cooked skin coming off of him against the rough stonework. His eyeballs popped from the heat, and of course the screams didn't go on for too long before he sounded like just another animal getting killed by just another animal. And in closing, Stacy cleaned out her fireplace and she gave the good bones to her new dog. She texted the first name on her list and texted that he should maybe drop by and help pull a train on some stupid bitch. And she had the bear spray ready. Now, Stacy Keller, she wasn't a patch on Jeffrey Dahmer, but she played a superpower avenging Charlie's angel a woman with a power to fake fuck a leathery Spartacus for two hours and to bail off a hit Aaron Spelling series after just one season. And that, that is what separates the Farahs from the Bo Derricks. <laughs> and in closing, <laughs> Stacy Keller worked through her entire list. No more dogs got stolen. Dog fighting disappeared from our town, and in closing, that's, that's what I want for you. For you to be the biggest bitch <laughs> that kills the big dogs, that kill the littlest dogs. And in closing, I want for you to open the windows so the whole neighborhood can hear that justice is being done, and so that all the dogs can howl along to the tortured screams and in closing, whatever life throws at you, whatever problems you face, I want you should ask yourself, why don't you? What would Farah do? Everyone, everyone, please autograph each other's yearbooks. And in closing, go Wildcats. So we are going to play a little game, but the first part of it involves you coaxing our extremely shy moderator, Rick Ganley, out onto the stage. So everyone, please chant with me, Rick, Rick, Rick.
So this is how the game is going to go. Nail somebody with the candy. Nail somebody with the candy? Your show, man. All right. Who wants the candy? Who wants it? Nice. How many of these do you have? Anybody want a box? Somebody's cat would love that. So the band is going to play. The house lights are going to go out. Rick has got a box of hoops. I have got a box of hoops. You are going to put your very phallic blinking things in the air and in a horribly binary way, we are going to throw these hoops. Boy, you are slow at this. Get them blinking. Get them in the air. Right now, you in Radio Land, this place is filling up with all these people waving, blinking light batons, which are biodegradable. That is, that is potato fighter. If you're Irish, you can eat it. So, as the lights go down and the band strikes up, we're gonna throw this, it will last about, it will be faster than you can imagine. Keep your hoop, go to the lobby afterwards on your way out and get your inscribed book. We're going to start. Band, take us away. Lights down. I should probably disclose um, right off the bat that I had a Cheryl Teague's poster over my bed in 1979. I don't know what you want to do with that. I just thought I'd share that. So, uh, Q&A, if we have any kind of demand for extra time, I've got a very, very short story we can toss in at the end, but that will be edited out this will be edited out, so don't worry about that bit. Well, it's theater of the mind. We can, you know, we can... Rick. Yeah. What do you want to know? I don't know. It's your show. This is great. This is, I've never done uh, an interview with anyone that brought their own props in my entire career, and I've been doing it for 30 years, so that's, this is the first for me, so thank you for that. Um, we're going to get to some of your questions throughout the evening here, but we've got some that I've come up with, and my producer, Sarah Plord, and I have come up with. And um, feel free to improvise. Um, I finished the book a couple of days ago, and I want to know from you about the perceptions that you're playing with here in this new book. Um, book, by the way, is 
not forever, but for now. Cecil is this, the narrator in the book. Is he, I would call him an, an unreliable narrator. And I'm wondering about the perceptions that the reader perceives, the perceptions he's perceiving. Is Cecil that reliable narrator? Can we believe him? You know, Cecil is not necessarily unreliable. He's just maybe unrealistic. Cecil loves his brother so much. This is really apostolic fiction. And it is a joy to write about one character who adores another character. In a way, this is sort of a British children's version of Fight Club. Because in Fight Club, the narrator sort of accepts Tyler Durden, warts and all. And in this book, Cecil accepts his older brother, warts and all. So he's a metaphor. What's a metaphor? Cecil and Otto, his brother, they're metaphors. Well, and it's also a metaphor. The whole book is kind of a metaphor for uh, imperialism. Yeah. And Cecil is kind of the way America adores Great Britain. America really looks up to its big brother, Great Britain, warts and all, and still loves him. And like a little brother, chafes against his big brother sometimes too, though. And realizes at some point he's got to break away and resolve that relationship. Yeah. Oh. Um, so tell us exactly who Cecil and Otto are. Give me a, a quick synopsis of the setting and where they are and what they're doing. Cecil and Otto. If you've seen Downton Abbey and you've seen Turn of the Screw, uh, where two perverted little kids live in a great English country house, and or you've seen or read We've Always Lived in the Castle by Kate Jackson, where two sisters live in a great huge country house, then imagine all of those mashed together and you have Cecil and Otto living in a gigantic Downton Abbey in the countryside, killing their servants. <laughs> and and writing. To writing, the point that they can't find anymore, right? They've got a reputation in the village. They have to accept a lower and lower grade of servant, but they're also writing mash letters to psycho killers who are in jail and mental hospitals, hoping that one will escape and, and come running to kind of spice up their lives. <laughs> And some do. And some do. Now you've envisioned this family of, uh, they're essentially contract killers and they're responsible for some of the most high profile deaths in the modern world and contemporary history. Um, Judy Garland, for instance, uh, there's a reference to that that comes back over and over again, Princess Diana. Um, where did that idea come from? I was in Los Angeles and I was driving through Burbank and it was, it was December during the day and I passed a yard with this enormous amount of uh, those blow-up Christmas sort of uh, uh, crush decorations. Wise men, shepherds, Mary, Jesus, camels, everybody. And the blowers weren't on, so they were all lying flat all over the lawn. And the thing that occurred to me is that this is exactly what Jonestown looks like. <laughs> Seriously, it was the dark, dark thought. That's, and first I thought, I was stopped at a traffic light. I thought, that's what Jonestown's looked like. And then I thought, that's what Kent State looked like. And that was really the germ of that aspect of the novel, was that innocuous, festive, sweet thing that in the light of day looks like something entirely different. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. <laughs> Gives us some work in editing. What's the deal with kangaroos? I, the kangaroos are a metaphor. 
I figured. I figured. Why, why so many? So there's more to go around. They're, they're our big finish, so. Stay tuned. Yeah. Um, speaking of animals, Otto has, he has a, a complete respect and love for the animal kingdom. Um, obviously, comparatively little respect for humans, considering he spends the novel killing people. So he actually plots to kill your stand-in for David Attenborough at one point in the novel. Read it. You'll, it'll make sense. I, I, trust me. What's the dichotomy about there? What, what's, where'd that come from? The two little boys are obsessed with nature films. And one of the most... When I was... I'm never going to have kids. I am never going to have kids. I don't have kids. So I'm never going to be able to kind of reevaluate my life choices by watching my kids go through these developmental stages. And one friend of mine, I always keep an eye on her, their kid. Um, she went through a phase where she pooped in anything except for the toilet. <laughs> and they had a rule where if you went to their house, you had to take your shoes off and leave them inside the front door. <laughs> She's getting married in two weeks, and I've been asked to speak at her wedding. <laughs> I cannot wait. But one aspect of childhood was, I came from a big family and we would all be watching these nature films, Mutual of Omaha, all of those nature films, and there would always be some sequence where a mother dick-dick, a mother deer, had hidden its baby in the grasses and was hoping to distract the predator. And you were just hoping that they would go for the mother who could run away and they wouldn't find this tiny little fawn and tear it to shreds on camera. And they would always find the tiny little fawn and we would watch it struggle, weeping, and we would watch it being pulled apart alive and then it would cut to a commercial for Hasbro. <laughs> and I, boy, everybody I know, we were all traumatized as kids watching that. And it didn't help that it was always, you know, Mutual of Omaha, what was his name? The moderator. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but it was I grew up watching it too. Always him in this kind of hushed voiceover saying, hmm, it looks as if the troop of baboons has grabbed, grabbed hold of the tiny frail fawn. Let's watch as it struggles and dies, bleeding from every orifice. And you're always eating dinner or something, you know, you're having a frozen TV dinner while that's going on. Oh, you were rich. <laughs> it's a black and white TV, isn't that help? And we, I just hate it because I thought that moderator guy, that Marlon Perkins, I'm like, Marlon Perkins, get your ass out there and you save that baby fawn. You're just standing here behind the camera because you know what makes for a good program and Mutual of Omaha is sending you a check and you are making us watch this tiny baby thing get torn to shreds. Marlon, I hate you. So the kids in this book are watching those same, more or less the same films, and they are hating Richard Attenborough because he's dead and he can't sue me. So how do you feel about nature documentaries today? Can you watch them now? I couldn't even watch that March of the Penguins. <laughs> when those two inept penguins had that 
they couldn't keep their egg alive and it froze and turned black? Jeez, you yeah. know. You just got to shut it off and sit for a few minutes. Yeah. No. <laughs> you got to curate your head. So you're mad at Morgan Freeman? You have a problem with Morgan Freeman? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Morgan Freeman just got paid to watch that baby chick die. <laughs> he could have stepped in there, taken that egg, put it inside his shirt, and we'd have one more baby penguin. Morgan, you're not off the hook. Telling you, professional voiceovers, they, they never even see the thing. They just handed a script. No, they're standing right by that camera. Yeah. <laughs> the violence in this book, like many of your other novels, it, it, it's routine. It's often mundane. It, it's, I'm wondering if that is a commentary on society in general. And in my notes here, I actually put in parentheses, duh. Do you know what imperialism is? Yes. Imperialism is everybody living in Downton Abbey. No, not everyone. Not even a fraction of everyone. But a tiny, tiny number of people living in Downton Abbey and everybody else getting ground up so they can live in Downton Abbey. And that's kind of the central metaphor for the book. You write about topics like violence and incest in, in a casual manner in this book. And a lot of ways, in many of your, your stories. What drives you to explore those, those taboo subjects? Wow. You know, number one, I, number one, I want to write the stories, I want to tell the stories that really only books can tell at this point. Because it costs a fortune to make a movie. And a movie has to reach such a vast audience, and television has to reach just a, a huge, possibly non-consenting audience that is probably sitting in a bar or an airport and does not want to see human centipede up there. <laughs> so I want to tell the stories that only books can tell at this point. Uh, I want to work to the strength of my, of my medium. So number one, that is it. Number two, I have this fantastically low threshold for boredom. So it has to escalate. I heard, uh, Billy Idol give a, an interview once about punk music, and he said, every punk song sounds the same. It's like two and a half minutes of boom, 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 and then it falls off a cliff. There's really no slow lead in. It's just boom, 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 and it falls off a cliff. And so I still am a punk. I still really hold on to the punk aesthetic. You know, so my stories have got to be boom, 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 fall off a cliff escalate fast, get out. So that's, that's two reasons that's enough for now. Okay. Um, throughout the book, um, Cecil quotes Otto, going back to the, the to brothers here, the, the main characters. At one point, they're talking about love. And Otto apparently telling Cecil, his younger brother, that people put too much stock in love and that keeping the love of others comes at the cost of one's own freedom implying that love is really a burden. I want to ask you about that. You know, and I, again, it's always Cecil seeking out the wisdom of his older brother, Otto. And they're both sons that have been raised more or less without a father. So they're kind of in trying to invent what it is to be a man. And so they're coming up with their own wisdom. Um, yeah, the way you, you more or less do when you're being raised by your peers. 
boy, I got told jokes in second grade that I had no idea what they were about. But I, I knew that if I told them, people laughed. So I would get stood up at the barber shop and I would tell fantastically racist, disgusting jokes without a clue about why people were laughing or what the jokes were about. And that's kind of what's happening with Cecil and Otto. They are trying to make up what it is to be a man. And so a lot of what they come up with is ludicrous or it's a rationalization for, uh, for why not to love people. Because lo if you love people, they will leave you and you'll be standing at their grave someday. So you've always got to, as soon as you meet someone, you've always got to find a reason to hate them. Because you know someday you'll be looking at them dead and you'll be hurting so bad that at least you can say, well, at least your ugly face died with you. <laughs> or at least your smelly feet died with you. And that's the kind of wisdom these two little boys are coming up with. So hate's a defense mechanism. Yeah. Another main theme that runs throughout this book is addiction. You write uh, about a lot of characters with addiction, Cecil and Otto, no exception. What role does addiction play in your sense of the world? What role does addiction play in my sense of the world? I tend to be a very systematized person. And I never used to drink. I never drank. But... Oh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I, I learned. I learned. And a few years ago, people started coming up to me at book events to have their books signed. It was when Fight Club 2 was released, the graphic novel. And it would be 200 people all full of joy and happiness and and I'd be trying to mirror their, their emotional state. I'd try to meet happy with happy. And then a small group would come up and they would say, this is for Ryan. He couldn't be here today. Would you make it out to Ryan? And I'd be all smiley and say, so where's Ryan? Why is Ryan not here today? And they'd say, because he's dead. Uh, because he overdosed two days ago. He had ordered this book on Amazon and it arrived the day after he died, and we would like to, you to inscribe it so we can bury it in the coffin with him. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then there'd be a couple more people, and then there would be another small group in which a, a brother, a husband, a wife, a sister had died of an overdose, and they had a book. And they said, will you make it out to Olivia? we'd like to put it in her coffin. Or we've made a little shrine, we're trying to keep her room the way it was. Um, and I found that at every event, I had two or three or four of these people asking me to inscribe books for their loved ones who had just died. And I would go back to my hotel room, still smiling, and I would drink the entire mini bar. And I would get so wasted. And I would take an Ambien and I would drink. And I'd take another Ambien and I would drink. And then COVID came. Oh my God. <laughs> There's always a reason to drink. And it really got out of control. So in a way, I wanted to write a big, dark comedy. 
because Max Brooks, whose mother, Anne Bancroft, died of cancer, Max told me, he said, everybody's got a mother and everyone's mother will die. And no one wants to read about your mother's death, even if she was a movie star. So you've got to turn it into something else because they're spending their time and their money and they don't want to read about your pain. They don't want to read about my addiction. So I wrote a dark comedy that very thickly masks the theme of addiction. And that's your answer. So it is very personal in a lot of ways. Is all your writing personal? Oh, don't go there. <laughs> I hate that NPR tone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm sitting at Lutheran Family Services. I've got kids in college, man. I gotta make a living, all right? I, I understand. Want NPR tone, I give them NPR tone. Okay. <laughs> Try to phrase it a little more combatively. Come on, Terry Gross me. <laughs> I didn't know we were role-playing tonight. So tell me, Chuck, how does that make you feel? Not as good as drinking does. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. We'll just leave that alone. I had a thought, but you know what? Sometimes maturity, you know. Um, See, uh, so, you've got to act on impulses. See, my stories, growing up, we always got fairy tales. And fairy tales were about if you don't act on the impulse, if you can just delay gratification, then way, way later in life, you get a little carnality. You get to have it on with somebody, and you get to live happily ever after. But most of us, including myself, messed up really early on. And we just went ahead and acted on every impulse. And we just messed it up royally. Until around the age of 28, you especially, sir. <laughs> around the age of 28, you were thinking, I will never be able to pair bond with anyone because <laughs> I am so damaged. I am so messed up. No one will ever love me. No one will ever want me. And that's why a happy ending in a Chuck book it's just one person connecting with one person. <laughs> because if just one person catches a bag of candy, that is enough. And so if you just catch your bag of candy, call it good. You're making dreams come true tonight. You're making dreams come true. You should have a matchmaking service at, at these events. So I'm gonna, I've got a couple of questions from the audience. We've got several, so I'm going to see if we get two. Oh, well, here's one. It's a good one. How would you hide the body? I like that one. Uh, I toured with Monica Drake and Chelsea Kane, two fantastic writers. And we wore uh, pajamas, and everyone in the audience wore pajamas. And we played games, and we threw stuff. And afterwards, we went to bars, and we drank a great deal. And... Monica had a great idea for a children's book. She wanted to write a children's book called You Can Feed a Pig a Prostitute. <laughs> so that's how I do it. 
seems slow and messy. You know what I mean? Like it, it just seems like it's more than a weekend. <laughs> what? Say that again? That's a good point. That's a good point. Anybody else? Who else has a good suggestion for hiding the, for burying the body? No? Come on. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. There you go. You need a you need a, you need a full farm really is what you need. You break it up and you bring it into different pens. I think. I haven't thought about it at all though. <laughs> That's, That's why no one right loves there. you. It's a lucky lady. <laughs> so you two are saying if we're ever in need, we can call you for the body? You get the feed, we get... Okay. <laughs> you mean about a half hour. Um, which one of your books was a joy to write? Which one was a terror? Boy, uh... In a way, they're all a joy to write. The, the man who taught me writing, who taught me minimalism, is a man named Tom Spambauer, who studied at Columbia with a man named Gordon Lish. And Lish was really the father of, of minimalism. Lish is the guy who edited uh, Raymond Carver so much. Uh, he created a literary magazine. He was an editor at Knopf. He was a big professor at Columbia. He taught Tom. And Tom said that writing a novel was going down into the coal mine and suffering for eight or nine years. And that's what Tom did to write a novel. And I thought, no, I got, I got plenty of suffering. I do not want to do that. Uh, so every novel has to be a party. Every novel has to be a fantastic, you know, better than anything else I could be doing with my time. Um, you never struggle with them? No. No, I, I struggle with, you know, getting Sylvia off the roof. That's, that's the joy about writing a novel is that all the real problems in your life disappear. They all become very okay, dealable, because you're dealing with this giant made-up problem that you've created that, that isn't really there. But you've got to solve this fantastically huge thing, and that occupies your monkey mind. So it's not saying boy, all those people out there are just hating me right now, aren't they? They really hate you. They're quiet right now because they hate you, because the monkey mind does that. So I keep it busy with some gigantic, made-up problem, and that makes my life a party. Do the characters inhabit you while you're writing? No. Are you, do you no. walk around, you go to the store, you're thinking of them, thinking plot? Not really. You know, the, the, the characters are not something I draw from myself because I am a very limited person. But I love when something goes out at a party and everybody leans into it. A while back I was teaching and we were talking about a used bookstore going out of business. And once I was researching there and someone, people every 15 minutes, you could set your watch. Every 15 minutes, some guy brought in boxes of old Playboys. And the clerk said, we do not buy old Playboys because nobody ever throws them away. They are worth nothing. Get rid of them. They're yours. And one of my students said, I wonder if that's how the big box of porn in the woods happens. <laughs> every neighborhood. In the 70s and 80s, every single neighborhood. Every person at that table leaned in with a story. 
they'd found as a child, as a child who was telling those jokes, I was telling them in the barbershop, they found a duffel bag or a cardboard box or a suitcase and they found it on a beach or they found it in the woods or stuffed up a tree or on a golf course. And they opened it up and they thought, what is this? And that was their introduction to sexuality. <laughs> 30 people at that table had that experience. One person did not. And simultaneously, we all thought we should write an anthology about children finding porn in natural settings. <laughs> and Trisha, the one person who had not found the porn, she said we should call it children of the porn. <laughs> so that, that is where my ideas come from. You throw an idea out and then you get everyone's much better version of the same thing. You're workshopping at parties. Let's get some really good audience questions here. What scares you? What scares me? Uh, you know, I think I'm always more frightened on behalf of other people because I know I can handle my own problems, but uh, I'm terrified that somebody's gonna kick my dog. Every time I walk my dog and we pass somebody, I think, is this person gonna kick my dog? Or I worry about my friends. Um, my husband, Mike, he will never ever come to my events because he knows that there might be a moment where I totally, totally flub or that Mark David Chapman is there that night. And he says, I am not gonna be Yoko Ono. <laughs> and so I think we're always more frightened on behalf of other people. So that's what scares me. I saw an interview many years ago with Stephen King, and the interviewer asked him, what scares him? And he said, that's simple, I have kids. Yeah. Which I thought was a perfect answer. You do, you always worry about something outside of your sphere of control. Somebody wants to know why you're not wearing shoes. <laughs> because I don't have to. That is the proper answer. Um, who's your favorite punk band? Uh, Darby Crash and the Germs. Um, let's see, what else? We got some good ones here. How about, did you finish your castle and will it be in a book someday? You have a castle? Uh, during, I, I come from a long line of Ukrainian stonemasons. <laughs> and if you've because ever- one does. <laughs> If you've ever, uh, ever been a hod carrier, a hod carrier is a person who, who typically puts a, a big, you know, 15, 20, 30 pounds of mortar on their shoulder and has to run up and down the ladder and back and forth across the scaffolding and get the mortar to the bricklayer, the stonemason, before the mortar gets stiff. And my brother and I, uh, we spent our entire childhood as hod carriers. And a while back, I was walking the dogs past a construction site, and there was a bricklayer like four floors up, and the hod carrier was a much younger guy because you're the hod carrier while you're the apprentice. And I heard the bricklayer shout, dude, I love the way you keep the mud alive. 
That is an Amy Hempel sentence. The gorgeous quality of that sentence, I love the way you keep the mud alive. It's, it's a sentence that will stay with me forever, but it was also a huge part of my childhood, was keeping the mud alive, getting the mud up to dad before it got stiff. And so during the lockdown, I called a stone yard. All the gyms were closed. I thought, if I'm going to be stuck out here in the woods, I'm going to build a big ruin of a castle with arched windows and courtyards and everything, everything. And so they brought out two huge dump trucks full of coarsed uh, sandstone, and I got tons and tons of bags of mortar and mixed it by hand and just laid rocks for about 18 months and built a castle. And no, I hope it is never in a magazine because it is just my castle. And again, why do it? Because you can? And because, because at any phase of your life, there is something you can do that you will not be able to do later in life. And sometimes, I've had built a lot of stone projects. Uh, last year, I built a, an arched bridge across a ravine. And I look at some of my earlier projects and I think, who the hell put that stone up there? That's like 115, 20, 30 pound stone. And somebody climbed a ladder with that stone on their back and placed it there and chinked it and put it there and it will be there for a long time. And that person is not the person I am now. So I wrote Fight Club at a time when I could write Fight Club. I could not write it now. I'm not the same person. So it's about doing the thing that you can only do at this point in your life. So is building something with your own hands a lot? Please, please. I'm wondering about building something with your hands, something that's lasting. How is it like writing? Again, it, it kind of goes to the monkey mind thing. I find that I, I get fantastically good ideas while I'm in the shower or washing dishes. If my body is occupied with a task, then that kind of occupies my monkey mind, and it allows these really unusual thoughts to occur. And so these kind of strange breakthrough thoughts, like what if you were the, the lady who smashed the champagne on the Titanic, how would you feel? Would you feel guilty? <laughs> Just strange non-secular thoughts occur while you've got your monkey mind, while you've got your body occupied in a big tactile task. And so physical labor tends to do that. And also it tends to make you a little crazy. If you're working in the heat and, and you're stressed, your mind goes to these really crazy places. And I like the kind of temporary delirium that sets up when you're really, really busting ass. Uh, people who run marathons, you know, these ultra marathon people, they get the craziest thoughts and those thoughts are just pure gold. I know you do a lot of experience-based research for your writing and an audience member asked about that. Like, trying out steroids or running in a Santa costume race. I think I read that story. Uh, what is anything, is there anything you wouldn't do for a book? Anything 
that you can think of that you would say, I, I'm not going to try that, I, I'm not interested? Ouch. You know, I was in El Cajon, California, in a giant borders with a big, big crowd, and somebody said, what would you not do? And I said, I would not gratuitously torture and kill an animal. And after the dog and pony show, all these people got in line to get their books signed. And I got through a couple hundred people, and a, and a kid comes up, and he's, he's brought me a copy of a Don DeLillo novel that he has completely marked up, defaced. And he says, will you sign this? And I said, thank you, sir. He's like a blonde surfer guy. I said, thank you, sir. I prefer not to sign books by other people. And he gets belligerent, and I said, I'm sorry, that's just my policy. And he leaves. And a short time later, he comes back with a mailing tube, big cardboard poster tube. He's gone to a pet store, and he's bought feeder mice and hamsters and gerbils, and he's put these living rodents into this tube, and he stands really close to me. I don't know this is going on. Suddenly, boom, all these little animals hit me, and they land, they hit the table, they hit the floor, I don't know what, what it is, something just slammed into me and I've got little spots of blood all over my shirt. And I look down and all these little things are twisting in their dying death throes. And they all have little bits of blood coming out of their mouths and they're all dying around me. None of them are alive, they're all dying. And all the bookstore people are busy, God bless them, selling books. And I've still got 400, 600 people in line to meet And I have to get down, and I have to pick up all of these dead and dying little things, and I have to take them back to the break room and put them someplace so, so they can die, the ones that are not dead. And my hands are covered in blood. And then I have to suck it up, and I have to go back out there and do my job. And I did that. So I will never gratuitously torture and kill an animal. And there were some people in California, in Los Angeles, just a couple nights ago, who had been at that event in El Cajon. And they said that once the crowd realized what this kid was doing, as he came in to do it, they went to his motorcycle, which he'd left parked on the sidewalk, and they tore it to pieces. They smashed it. They destroyed it. It was a pile of junk when he came running back out to it. And he had to run away on foot. And that's as good a happy ending as you get. Tone shift, Chuck. <laughs> you said your writing is deeply personal, and I'm wondering about the through line in your writing, something that you're still exploring or seeking to to figure out about yourself, the human condition, that kind of thing. After years of writing, do you see that through line? You know, there's a, there's a couple kind of through lines. I graduated with a degree in uh, journalism. And recently, one of the big hiring websites, uh, LinkedIn, I can't remember what, they did a survey of uh, what is the most regretted college degree 
and journalism came in at number one. Sociology came in at number two. And as soon as I graduated, I got a, a reporting job, $5 an hour. I had to drive, drive my own car. And so I ended up quitting and getting a job on the Freightliner assembly line. And so I worked putting trucks together, chassis buildup, for about seven or eight years. And then I got upgraded to a, a workshop called the R&M Center, Repairability and Maintainability Center, where we just maintained these these mock-ups where it was just the front of a, a truck cab and a windshield wiper would just go and headlights would just go tick, 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 tick. And they'd turn on and off whatever the component was, it would do its job over and over so that when it broke, the engineers could study how it broke and why it broke. And so so often, so many of my novels are about creating a kind of social model. How can I fool people into loving me? I'll, I'll go to terminal illness support groups and allow people to assume I'm dying, and I'll pretend to love them, and they'll love me. Or I will pretend to choke on food, and they'll, they'll think they're saving me, and because I have made them a hero. They will love me, and I won't have to love them back. And so, so many of my novels are about creating a kind of scam or farce for emotional fulfillment, and also about creating a social model. What if you could go to a place and, and engage in consensual fighting? What if you could badge your car in a certain way? like just married, or, or putting a Christmas tree on top during the wrong time of the year. And that way you badged your car as somebody engaged in a consensual demolition derby in public. Create the social model, create the emotional model, and then just keep pushing it, tick, 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 until it broke. Push it harder and harder, like at the R&M Center, and then see how it breaks and see why it breaks. How would you inspire a young writer today? What would you say to them to find that creativity, to find that, that place that they can go to? If she hasn't already, your mom is going to die. Sorry. <laughs> Somebody had to tell you. Your mom is going to die. Your dad is going to die. Your dog is going to die. There will always be fantastically horrible things. And there are things that you cannot fix and are incredibly hard to be with. And if you have a kind of art or creativity that you can use to distance yourself from the immediacy of the pain and you can use to exhaust and exaggerate and fully resolve your emotional reaction to that pain, then you will be a happier and healthier person, and you will not be destroyed by these things. So if nothing else, it is a fantastic coping mechanism. There's a catharsis to it. Catharsis, if you can do it for other people, that's great, but yeah. We're getting some more audience questions here. Um, 
What book do you go back to over and over again? Have you read any books? Do you go back to once a year, any particular title? This is an easy one because it fell out of copyright this year. I was at, I was at Barnes & Noble, you know, uh, this year's book, uh, not forever but for now. I thought I would try to write a cozy, and a cozy is a, is a type of uh, murder mystery, it's a genre, it's probably the most popular genre of murder mysteries. It's, it's an English village, somebody gets hideously butchered at a bake sale or in somebody's garden with a pitchfork, and a vicar or an old lady or a cat solves the crime. Murder, she wrote. And they're called cozies. And I bought a whole stack of cozies. And I was going to read them while I was snowed in at my house. And I really hated those books. <laughs> but I thought I could use all of the conventions of these cozies to write a fantastically dark, messed up book. So in a way, this year's novel is a giant cozy on you know, on steroids and LSD. What was the question? <laughs> I completely forgot. I don't think it matters. <laughs> it does read somewhat like, like a, a British mystery novel, a very twisted, very dark British mystery novel. Um, did you, do you enjoy those, those stories? Do you get any satisfaction out of them, or do you, do you read them just with hate. The other thing about cozies is that nobody ever has sex. <laughs> the cat never has sex. Miss Marble never has sex. And so I thought, what if I wrote a really So they're very British. <laughs> British people have sex. <laughs> I thought, what if I write a really fantastically raunchy novel, but it's all done in euphemisms and the only thing I ever say is having a go and having it off. Because I, I watch a lot of BBC America. And so throughout the book, it's like always having a go and he has it off and he has a go and he has it off. And then doing these interviews, interviewers are always leaning close with these kind of disgusted faces and saying, how could you have written that scene where blah, 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 and they unpack a scene of such visceral, specific obscenity where all I wrote was having a go. <laughs> and I realized, this is all on you. <laughs> I am sitting here with somebody really scary. <laughs> because it forces the reader to fill in the blank with something nastier than I ever, ever could have put there. And that is why we never see the baby at the end of Rosemary's Baby. And we never see Gwyneth Paltrow's head in that box. Because what's in your head is a thousand times nastier. I will admit, when I, when I was reading the book, I, uh, several times I was, I was put off by that, thinking, wow, he, this, is, this is heavy. And then I thought, well, this is going to be more metaphorical. There's something else here I'm missing. Every time you said, have a go. Fill in the blank. I don't, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but there's, a, there's, a, there's something at the end of the book. Um, this, has been, this has been a wonderful discussion, very free-flowing. And you guys have much better questions than I did, so thank you for that. Um, I do have one last question for you I want to ask you. 
and this is an audience question as well. It's the afterlife. You find yourself with a karaoke machine, but it only has one song. What's the song you hope it is? And is this in heaven or hell? Oh, the shark has shiny teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Oh, Mac, oh, Mac Heath has, has a, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> Mac the Knife, Bobby Darren. And is it? It is hell, yeah. <laughs> Again, the proper answer. <laughs> Chuck Polinick, everyone. What'd you guys think? You like it? Thank you. Thank you. This been really fun. And thank you for all the questions. You guys did the job for me. I had a whole list of questions. I said, no, nah, these aren't good. You guys are the right questions. Thanks so much. And Chuck Polinick, thank you. Thank you. Did you have Rick. good time? Now, I'd like to do one thing that's always kind of become a kind of closing thing, and that is ask you a question. May I ask you a question? Okay. Has Amazon ever thrown a bag of candy right at your head? The other thing to know is when I throw that candy out in Canada, people open the bag and give everyone around them candy. And when I throw it out in the U.S., they're like, no, it's my candy. <laughs> Has Amazon ever thrown a dog toy to you for your dog? Has Amazon ever thrown a tiny baby stuffed kangaroo at you? Well, tonight, the book nook has. And I would like to invite them up here on stage so they can get a round of applause from you. Would you do that for me? It's worth it, it's worth it. The book nook, please. I'm going to just read the credits while you guys throw out the kangaroos, okay? <laughs> I want to thank the Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sautel. I want to thank New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, Tim Schachter. New Hampshire Public Radio producer, a producer who keeps me in line, who's one of the best producers I've ever worked with, Sarah Plord. Sarah, thank you. The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineers, Ann Martin. The Music Hall Production Manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall Literary Producer, Brittany Wasson. Musical Director... Bob Lord, and of course your band tonight, Dreadnought. I'm Rick Anley. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Enjoy your kangaroo. Responsibly. <laughs> <laughs>